Welcome back to the Make Account Podcast. I'm Marcus Meir, founder of Meir Group CPAs and the Total Control Accounting System. And I'm Tyler Warner, small business owner with a lot of accounting questions. Today we got a guest, Clayton George. He is the founder of PES. And uh, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we'll, we'll launch into kind of some of your backstory. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And uh, really happy to, to be here, guys. It's super exciting. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by trade and founder of PES, a mechanical engineering firm uh, here in town that originally grew up in the oil and gas industry and over the past five to six years has diversified quite a bit into to several other industries. But uh, we're just very interested in um, the things you guys are doing here uh, at the Mirror Group. And uh, we do things quite differently than a lot of other engineering yeah, firms out yeah. there. And uh, we're just, I'm excited to be here and, yeah. and talk and, about this thing. And yeah. doing things differently is kind of the whole topic of today's podcast. We're going to be talking about change management and what it's like to, as a founder, a leader in your business to like recognize what needs to be changed, you know, and then the journey that it is to actually implement that change. And so let's just start from the beginning. Like everybody that's a business owner can probably realize several stories of like, oh man, this is the, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. What were some of those stories for you where you just were like overwhelmed with the recognition of change? Yeah, sure. Well, change is just a scary topic, no matter what age or old you are. But, uh, we, well, I started this business. Uh, I had a lot of really good role models growing up, uh, especially in the small business world. My, uh, my mom's family, uh, started Judy Sin, a hamburger joint here in town. Really? Yeah. That's it. And, nice. Uh, okay. And can my we dad. Get, can we get the bonus sauce re- recipe at the <laughs> right, end of the episode? Right. I don't even know that one. Oh. I don't even know that one. That's <laughs> in a safe. Just, uh, it's uh, yeah, deep in the family vault. I don't even yeah. know that one. And, uh, and my dad uh, had a really good industrial service business, Cochran Scales, that he kind of worked from the ground up and eventually uh, took on and took over. So I had a lot of really good role models uh, and examples growing up. So it was kind of naturally in me to always want to build something and, and start a business uh, of my own. And um, I guess that, that's, what, that's what made me really want to get into uh, something, some kind of entrepreneurial model, some kind of uh, just to build something. Right? So I got a quick question. So I was looking, I think I kind of looked back at your bio, what kind of could see when you started PES. And it seems like you and I have a similar path there. How old were you when you started PES? I was 27. Okay. So you have a similar story to me, and I'm going to get yours, but um, – I started, when I left, I was a CPA at a small firm. I left, and and my wife said, you, you know, you didn't really have a plan starting this business. I said, yeah, I did. I just didn't want to work for those guys. So <laughs> that was my plan. So kind of tell us, like, when you got kicked off, like, what made you yeah. what made you get it going? Well, get mine, started. mine was a little different because I did want to work for those guys. Okay. I just wanted to work for them at a different right. uh, and I did, yeah. system. Yeah. Those guys know who I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I know. But, uh, no, I had a, a lot of really good mentors that I worked for. A um, few oil and gas service companies, a few engineering firms, and eventually just decided one day, like, hey, I'm doing their work. Why don't I just make it easier on both of us and save them some money? Let me give me an opportunity to make a little more and just take them on as a customer yep. and uh, try to hang my own shingle. Yeah. And it, uh, I was working for HB Rentals at the time and uh, had a lot of really good people who were very gracious in helping me make that transition. 
So it wasn't like a cold turkey, like I'm going to start this thing and now I just don't have any money, any customers, I got to go get it. You were smarter than me. It was, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right. More, let's call it more measured. Yeah. Uh, I was a little more scared. But right, right. Sometimes, sometimes jumping in the pool right, uh, right. all at once is better too. But uh, yeah, and they, they were very gracious in helping me and we eventually took them on as a client, uh, picked up a couple more as we went, added more team members, got help, and things were really, really going great. You know, we're at a point where we're, you know, it's super exciting when you start to double and triple your income and things are going great. And you just feel like Superman. Like I can work 80 hours a week all the time, every day, no matter what, like I can do this forever. Yeah. And it just, there comes a point. And for me, it was a very clear line in the sand when I realized like, I can't do this forever. I can't just keep creating hours. You know, I only have so many hours for the rest of my life. And that, aha moment happened to me when I was in the delivery room. My wife had just delivered our first child and they're sleeping. She had just fed them. It's the middle of the night and I'm just working on the computer, trying to make a delivery, finish a drawing for a customer. And at that point I realized like, man, if I don't get help, if I don't do something different, if I don't change something like I'm going to miss out on all my kids entire life. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's when it really hit me that that I can't do it all alone. So at that point, was it kind of take us back to that point? Did you have how big of the team did you have at that point? At that point, it was just me. Okay, so it was just me taking on you know I had about a dozen clients that I was servicing. Okay, and I, you know as as a typical you know entrepreneur when you're starting like I don't want to hire people have a lot of payroll burden and do that at first right. a little bit scared of that scared of change right and uh, so then I I said well look I've got to I've got to hire some I've got to I have enough money. I need more. I need my time back. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what were you, were you selling time at that point? Yeah. More or less uh, billable hours. Yeah. Okay. Believe it or not. Yeah. Which uh, we'll get into in a minute here. Yeah, I'm but, sure. <laughs> but I'm sure. I know you guys know how I feel on that. Right. Right. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. It, it, we dropped his video in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it does drive a lot of this. Uh, but yeah, I realized that, you know, if you want to go somewhere fast, you go alone. Yeah. If you want to go somewhere far, you got to bring on help. Yeah. So you kind of gotten to the point where it's like, and I've, and I've sensed this, and everybody's got their different strategy on hiring. What's the timing? You can be super, like, uh, I would say analytical about when you hire, when I get this much in revenue. But sometimes it's just like what you said. It's this feeling that I got to hire somebody. Like, I can't do this. So I, while I don't know... I guess I can kind of estimate yeah, what's going to it's cost. It's the feeling of you're drowning. I and need to. At this I need point, to throw the analytics <laughs> out the window. I need to buy a lifeboat. <laughs> but but, at this, but but my point in all that is, I've I've always experienced, and it, and it's almost something I think about, mm-hmm. and I'm like, why don't I do more than more of this? The more I do delegate to good people, the revenue, you know, and what it costs to delegate is the cost of your payroll, right, and mm-hmm. other overhead. The work just seems to backfill. Did you kind of experience that when you when you did that? When you said, "Okay, I'm just gonna, I gotta hire somebody. Let's go. I know it's gonna cost me." You know, I never thought of it that way, but that's exactly how it happened. Like you, you, you hire this person, get oh god, I gotta pay his payroll now. What if I can't afford to pay him? But the work just kind of it happens. Yeah. Because I think what happened to me is you're well. There's some accountability in hire someone, right? You got to make sure you have enough work to feed both of y'all. And uh, what I learned right when we hired someone is that when I hired him. It freed me up to go sell. Right. So it's a little more business. Fast forward a few years later, I realized that, okay, it's kind of an endless up and down cycle. Like when we're busy, 
there's no time to sell when we're slow, you know, got to go get some work. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what I really, but by bringing on good people, uh, that you trust it, it allowed me to really take the next step and, uh, realize that, that I can't do it all. Yeah. What was the next step? Cause you're describing that, you know, that roller coaster that a lot of professional business companies, you know, the feast or famine kind of, uh, I mean, I've been through that cycle in in a web design company where it's like, man, we're, we're slammed. And then because we're so slammed, I haven't, I haven't paid attention to the pipeline of business. And now we're, you know, that's so, that, uh, yeah. When he's, when he described that up and down, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking yeah, about. I think a lot of people in any kind of service-based business have felt that, but, um, yeah, walk us through like the next step because what you're doing now as an engineering firm looks radically different than most engineering firms. So just paint a picture of what that looks like and then maybe how you got there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, like I said, we hired one guy and eventually you dedicate a little more work to sales. You get another guy and another guy and yeah. another guy. And it kind of starts to get a little bit of a head of steam. Luckily, we got really good people. But what I found was for the first three to five years of the business, it was very just authoritative. Like everything kind of came through me. A lot of the decisions came across my desk. And thank God I had employees and team members who were really patient with me because I wasn't that patient. And I expected them to do it my way every time. And I think it's a big temptation that a lot of business owners have is they want to in a sense, blame the employee. Like, uh, he's not working as hard as me or he's not doing it right. What we've found over the years is all employees, like all of our team, or at least the ones that we've hired, they want to do great things. They really want to do well. You just have to make clear expectations of what good looks like for your organization. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it, yeah. And I think, too, like I was talking to somebody recently, kind of getting back to you what's kind of an accountability and an expectation i was talking to somebody recently and they said yeah you know we got rid of so and so they just weren't just weren't cutting it and i was like well kind of tell me you know what they were doing because in the back of my mind i knew this person that they had them sitting at a desk in the boss's office at a round table with two monitors on top of phone books so i'm thinking to myself did you set them up for success did you tell them the expectations and did you did they think you gave a damn yeah. Quite honestly, right. you've got them sitting in your office with two monitors on phone books. Yeah. So like to your point, most people, and, and that also begs the question, how's your hiring, right? Mm-hmm. If you, if you think you have a decent hiring process, you can get good people to the table. Then once you do is kind of unleash them with expectations and they generally will meet them if you're hiring, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cause we, the old cliche goes, the customer's always right. Yeah. Well, that phrase can bankrupt the company as well if you keep giving and giving away stuff. Yeah. And all employees, they want to make the customer happy, just yeah. like we all do as an organization. But when we figured out what we do that creates value for the customer, but more importantly, what we don't do. Oh, man. I want to. That's when the light bulb went off. That's yeah. it. Yeah. It's like I'm like writing notes here. I want to talk about stuff. I don't want to jump ahead. But that's for us. That was we. We probably like you, uh, y'all do engagement letters for pretty much most of your stuff, or you kind of have an ongoing like scope of work for your clients. Yeah, yeah. yeah. one thing, scope. yeah, one, one, somebody told me, I thought this was unbelievable. They said, don't say what you're gonna do. Well, you should say what you're going to do, but you also say, like in our engagement letters, these are the things explicitly 
that, that we're explicitly not doing. Mm-hmm. Man, that was a game changer for us because I think you and I could talk the same language in professional services. Mm-hmm. A big problem is scope creep. Mm-hmm. So to your point, your staff gets a request. They want to keep the customer happy. And quite frankly, you, they want the customer to think that they're doing a good job so that you, the owner, finds out about it. So what do they do? They do these one to two, three things that probably weren't agreed upon or paid for, right. and they do them. Man, that's like leaking oil. Like I know that for us, we... When you empower your team with expectations about their performance, but also expectations about what the organization has said they will deliver to their clients Mm -hmm. and transparency. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit. A lot of people don't let their employees or like you, I call them team members, don't let them into the big picture. They kind of keep them at Mm -hmm. arm's length. When you tell somebody on your team, hey, this is what we agreed to do. You can go look at the engagement letters in our quoting software. They then make those decisions or at least raise their hand and say, hey. Clayton, you know, we said we weren't going to do this. How do you feel about this? And then you can maybe make that choice. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was there a point when you've had that you're building this team and then it, it switched from, okay, we're going to have to make a big change here from, from billable hours, sort of the status quo of what engineering firms do Law to, firms, accounting to firms. this other idea that you may not had have figured out? What was that? Yeah. What were uh, those conversations like? What was the, how did you define you the change? Yeah. yeah. And like roll it out. Right. Right. Well, there were, there were two really good books that I read that really helped us a lot in that regard. One is, uh, the E-Myth by Michael oh, Gerber. Yeah, Michael Gerber. Yeah. It's, which I would recommend to any new yeah. entrepreneur who's fixing to start something like it's, it's just a good basic framework. And the book is all about how you define all of your processes. You know, not that as an engineer, we always want to proceduralize everything, but there's always plus ones, right? And we can get into that later, but that all comes down to your purpose as an organization. But you have to define how you successfully serve the customer each time to where your, not your methods, but your approach is the same every time. That helped us a lot of way. That helped to decentralize our management structure, get a lot of stuff out of my head. But there was another book uh, that really helped us as well was the uh, Implementing Value Pricing. Is it Ron Baker? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I he's think like a he's like a you know like a god in the accounting pricing world, but I guess in professional services in general. Yeah, and he, he yeah. has a really good book on that subject, value pricing. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, it's it's really speaks to the core of how we do things a lot. And what the gist of that book was, it says that um, the amount of time that goes into building, making, designing, accounting something has nothing to do with what it's worth. Correct. It's what it's worth to the client. How many hours go into it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think yeah. It, it, I think too what what I what I tell a lot of people about value pricing is is it's twofold, right? So it's it's on the upside and the downside. And what I mean by that is on the upside, meaning you should get paid for the value, mm-hmm. whether you deem that to be ten hours at two hundred dollars an hour, or if it's twenty thousand. If the value yeah. is twenty thousand, that's what you should get paid for. It. But it also then begs the question, which is where a lot of people get, I think, in trouble with their clients from a bill-by-the-hour perspective is they also then take that bill-by-the-hour approach to things that have no value. Mm-hmm. So they don't get paid enough value. Like, give you an example. If I helped you secure financing that saved your business for a million dollars and it took me three hours, is that worth three hours at my hourly rate? It's probably not. It might be worth ten grand to you because I saved your business. At the same token, if I did a task that took me two hours that yielded no value to you, it's not worth anything. I shouldn't bill you for two hours. So it cuts both ways, and I think that's the problem a lot of people have with the billable hour and kind of – and I think most people listening to this can relate because they've consumed services from professional services people. Mm -hmm. It cuts both ways. I think as the customer, you're willing to pay more 
I mean, I know you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, the science says that. And you also want that same, like, you know, concern given to you on things that aren't worth anything. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. And another thing that Bill Blower does, it it doesn't create allies or partners between the customer and the and the firm. It almost makes them adversarial with each other. The client will, you know, call the firm and and can say, uh, like they're it's almost like they're they're arguing, like that shouldn't take that many hours. And what it does to the firm, it causes them to search for problems, not yeah. solutions. Right. In a sense. But I think we kind of diverted from your question quite a bit there, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, no, I can, for how we, a change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that was a big change. So I'm curious. Yeah, like, no, that was the big so, change. And I guess I'm just trying to kind of peer into like, you know, for we talk about, you know, value and flat rate billing quite a bit and different things. But I'm just thinking for the for the business owner who's listening and is just thinking, yeah, that seems I know that's radical of a change. Um, and I. I I don't know how I would get my employees to trust me to do that. Whenever I tell them, hey, we're about to make a big change. Like I've had to tell staff like, hey, I think we're going to like I remember one time. Yeah, I've made quite a few change agents. But I remember at one point we were working for a lot. We were subcontractors for a lot of agencies. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that was we couldn't publish any of the work that we had done because it was white labeled. And so on one hand, it was like great that we had consistent work, but it also meant that it was stunting our growth because Mm -hmm. we couldn't show people, hey, this is all the great work that we're doing. And so at one point I was like, all right, I know this is going to like shut us down quite a bit with some clients, but we're going to start this day saying we're going to announce to all these agencies, hey, you can we'd still love your work, but we're going to put it in our portfolio publicly. Mm -hmm. And we knew that that was going to get some backlash. And I told the staff at the time, like, hey, we're going to make this move. I'm preparing for the worst, hoping for the best, right. you know, and it's yeah. kind of, you know, they're just like, oh, my gosh, are we going to be yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like all I've done for the past month is agency work. Am I going to be employed next month? Right. You know, <laughs> um, so tell us about that. Like, what is what is it that you have experienced in sort of like going through that change with a staff and, and how yeah. do you get people there? Well, like you said, we're, everybody's scared of change. And the way we did it was our organization, we changed things pretty rapidly. And uh, luckily, we have a team that trusts us. But we, we basically just drew a line in the sand, cold turkey, said, from here on out, all of our prices are going to be fixed. And we're going to set the pricing on what it's worth to the client. And then we got the questions, well, what, 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 happens, if we, what happens if we bust on the hours and we cost too much money and we lose money? I, I, said, love, I love this. Then we're, we we're going to lose money. Yeah. And we did <laughs> for quite some time at first, right? And okay. change yeah. is painful, and we did. But then that's when we had the aha moment where, you know, I would go look at all the hours reports every day, and I'd go, like, crack the whip over each of our guys each time. It's like, hey, we're busting on hours. We're losing money here. We're losing money here. And they, like, it was unfair of me to expect that of them because they had no transparency. They had no way to see how they were doing. They didn't really even understand that that's what the gauge of success was. They didn't understand that they had to come in under budget. That was purely my fault as uh, from a lack of leadership. So that's what we inspired us to develop the uh, PES customer alignment and success system, the CAS system we call it. And we basically publish all the major KPIs of the company on dashboards to measure performance. Uh, we have composite hourly rates on the dashboard that cl- clearly show our guys like how well they're doing on the job. But the main thing that we really turned on our head in the industry was we flipped from a, if we're going to charge our clients a fixed rate value pricing, we're not going to pay our employees based on the hour two. We're going to 
pay them by the value that they create. And it was, it was quite a scary change, very scary change. So and did you implement that at the same time? Did you go, would you go to fixed pricing and the new compensation model at the same time? It was about a, probably six months to a year. year okay, again. so you kind of had like a, you had some lag, mm-hmm. see how this thing's going, and then you, you kind of thought to yourself, well, if I'm aligning, I'm trying to align, exactly. right? You're trying to align my, my team in their productivity with what we're making top line revenue on, on each project. Right, yeah. And exactly, and the way we did it was, we said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do every month because change has to change. You have to work in change gradually. I mean, we, we made a kind of a knee-jerk line in the sand with the value pricing, but we knew that when we're experimenting with compensation that we had to do it gradually. So what we did was, we said, okay, guys, we're going to show you every month basically how much work you executed, the dollar amount of work you executed, and compare that to your overtime. And we basically, we're going to give you the choice to pick which one is more each month. And it gave them the ability to pick and choose uh, which which way they wanted to go. And lo and behold, when we showed them what victory looked like and what we wanted to do to serve the customer, like they they executed right away. And they, that's, that's awesome. So I, I keep one of the things you're saying is something that I was saying to a buddy of mine. I was on his podcast a week ago. We're talking about change management. We're talking about this before you and I got started. But I keep hearing you say which I think anybody instituting change, I think this is the biggest point. You have to keep as the leader impressing upon the team, hey, this is not maybe not the finish line, but this is what success looks like. Right. And success, it looks better than our present state right now. So it's just right. constant holding the goal in front of them saying, this is what we all agreed we were going for. Like, and I think that's a role as a leader. Have you, mm-hmm. have you experienced that? I mean, the, the constant, not maybe constant, but the reminding, the, the real, I would say, you know, um, averting people's eyes back to what you said you wanted to do that. We all agreed this was a good change to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what I found was, like I said, the first five years that I ran this thing, I didn't share much of that with them. Like I w- it was just basically giving orders and it was, authoritative and like I'm just not proud of some of the way that I as a leader handled that and uh, we wanted to to decentralize it to show them the purpose of it all when we show them the purpose they can see what we're trying to do as an organization yeah our purpose is to deliver value to our customers so we both can be successful and we showed them the purpose that high level focus what we're trying to do that's when it kind of snaps into place that's when it kind of aligned our Communication aligned our interest with our customers. Um, How have they the responded? Customers or the yeah. team members? Well, they they responded well, and we've kind of we've had quite a bit of success over the past four, five, six years. Um, they like it because one of our big KPIs is is on time deliveries, and we derive that as a team as one of our big metrics because uh, I feel like that's a problem that a lot of customers. A lot of operators in the oil and gas industry have with engineering firms. They always get it to about the 10-yard line, and that last 10 yards, they can't quite finish it. There's always something kind of holding it up. We knew that one of our KPIs was deliveries, and that's what we started to measure. And that's how we told our guys. That's how we showed them what success looked like. And lo and behold, I think our on-time success rate is somewhere around uh, 93% or something right now. And it's... um, it's bode well with our customers. I think it's done well to communicate our, our brand to our customers. Rachel. I'm curious because I can totally relate to that 10-yard line example. 
because I think as professionals and I think engineers and accountants probably share this, this kind of perfectionism thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have a saying around here, like just as a general rule, done's better than perfect. A lot of times, and sometimes that's hard to step back in a really technical field where in my example, one number in the wrong box or one check box, while you say, oh, I'd rather be done than perfect, could change things. Mm-hmm. And probably similar to you, right. where if you don't draw this exactly, I don't know exactly yeah. what you guys the do. The bridge collapses. Correct. Yeah, you, yeah that's right. right. But it, well, well, we got it done. Right? It was done right. on time. Yeah. Yeah. We're 93%, yeah. right? Yeah. So my point is, what did y'all, how did you mitigate that? I mean, that's a, like, if people, I know that's going to resonate with people that work in professional services or deliver things to clients. That little bit at the end is where you make a lot of money, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. But how did you, what did you do as a team to kind of impress upon, like, get across the finish line? Well, we, uh, accountability, quote, cuts both ways, right? It, it, you need some buy-in from the customer and you need buy-in from your team members. So we kind of, we don't allow a job to start until we get, you know, majority of the questions answered. Okay. Then we let it run and then they execute it. The last 10%, I mean, we have several tiers of you know quality control and review process that that documents go through. But if that last ten percent, if we're in the gray, we're going to err on the side of caution, you know, because we are responsible for you know protecting the livelihood of the public as engineers, yep. and uh, we have to make sure everything's safe. But there's a big difference between uh, doing what's safe and what works and following code and a customer preference per se. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, so absolutely. We have a good way of kind of delineating the difference between there's customer preference and there's there's things that are just non-negotiable from a quality standpoint. And so you're doing safety. I think what you said was you're doing a lot of that a lot of that can be done on the front end where you you're I guess determining expectations with the customer. Right. Okay. And I mean, that's good because so many people jump into work and I think right. we can we kind of getting back to where you started, where you just got going and you were taking, you probably taking on any client you could. I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll get into that a little bit is this, this thought of, no, you, you're going to do it a certain way, but there got to be these clear, like people start going. And I think that's what holds them up is that there wasn't clear communication on the front end of how to do it, right. you know, and that's what gets you at the end. I know. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So is this like philosophy, something you just recommend wholeheartedly? Like if, if somebody's listening is like, man, I'm definitely you know, there's so many, so many ways you can trade dollars for hours. Now Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a great, it's a great place to start your business, honestly, but it's, it's limited. Like you've exposed, what would you say is like the next, the next move to get out of that, to get out of the hourly mindset? You have to define value for what it's worth. Like Marcus was just saying, and the way we do it, is we basically have a pricing sheet for everything that we do. And, you know, engineering, it's design, no projects are the same, but there's a range, a pricing range for each type of project, depending on complexity, you know, the liability in it or whatever. Yeah. And we we define those up front. And our sales team, you know, has the ability to, they can work within those ranges, but they have to stay within those ranges to land it. And what's really, really great about what we do in the the compensation model is it... uh, our guys are heavily compensated based on, on how much they execute. And our sales team is also incentivized by how much our team executes as well. So it, it aligns their interests to get pricing right, to deliver the right value to the customer, to where we're all in alignment uh, for how we measure and execute that value. Have you ever had a situation where, because, so when you go to a fixed pricing model, and, and so... 
yeah, obviously the, the faster you do things, right, the more to the bottom line. Has it, have you sensed a spirit of innovation amongst your team? Because they know I'm willing, I being the, 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 the one who's doing the work, I'm willing to go and try to innovate and figure things out and do it a better way because I know it will right. lead to me, the company doing better and to me doing better. Right, right. Because when you're paying, when you're billing by the hour, when you're paying them by the hour, I mean, it, it's simple to see. They're incentivized to go create problems. Not that they will. Yeah. Not that good people won't. But in human nature, they're not going to be incentivized to, like you said, innovate, be more efficient, provide more value. Right. Because what we focus on is not so much, you know, you, we can, there's all things we can do to cut costs, you know, technology, be more efficient, reduce the hours, lower our price to where we can increase that value we can provide for our client. But while we do think that's important, being efficient, we like to focus on increasing the value uh, of the product that we deliver. Like gotcha. if we could, yeah. you know, detail the steel more to where you could save $100,000 in the fab shop, we'd rather do that than worry about saving two hours here. Right. If we're uh, if we could deliver this, you know, a day or two early for you, um, that's that's if that's more valuable to you, especially in the oil and gas industry where where you know everything is volatile and everything's needed right now. Yeah. Uh, that creates more value than you know being one or two hours less efficient. Gotcha. We that's why we allow our guys. We offer completely unlimited paid time off to all our guys. They decide when they work. Uh, we trust them to get it done, and all. They take on as much work. That's that's another really uh, revolutionary thing about the way we do it is no work's assigned. When a salesman closes an order for us, it'll pop up on the scoreboard in the office. It sends everyone a text message. And if you meet the technical criteria to be able to execute that project, you can request it to work on it if you want to earn the compensation that's attached to it dude my, i'm yeah i'm like getting hot flashes here he yeah. said dashboard text message yeah. like it's like uh, yeah yeah i'm just yeah i'm just thinking everybody walk around it's like virtual reality right. at his office you they're know? all wearing the oculus it's like, <laughs> right. they, they meet in the metaverse for coffee right. and then but i think i think he, you know he's uh, you know kind of roundabout way just talking about process yeah you know and um God, no, I mean, what the big thing, it's like, man, focusing on alignment that yeah. solves so many problems. It seems like that's just the, if you can just align, which obviously easier said than done. Right. right. But aligning the, the employees, the client and the company, no, just, that's, but if you make that, you're like, if you just, man, camp out on that, it does seem to like all the other problems fade away. I think of so many, like just yeah, the fixed billing. We talk about how other so many other problems that solves the yeah. uh, the unlimited time off and not managing that. It solves so many other problems. So it seems like you've really kind of built a pretty powerful system in terms of just just a whole different approach of work life balance and everything else. Do y'all ever run into situations where? You know, because it, where there's a job that just sits there. So, to, you know, to your point, you, you, your sales close a new deal. Yeah, It's up on the board, right? So because, you know, with that autonomy comes autonomy, right? <laughs> so have you ever sent a point where it's like, everybody's like, oh, the hell with that job. There's probably, there's probably one so, guy in the office who's like, oh, that's that one's for me. <laughs> right, right. Does, I mean, you know? Well, it, it gets right back to alignment. Yeah. And I think that's happened once. Yeah. Once in five years, one yeah. time. And, uh... We basically told the sale, like, you got to go tell the customer that no one wants it. <laughs> Come really? On. Wow. And, That's interesting. and it basically, the, uh, it, it, it didn't align interests enough, but, uh, 
It, the cusp from the customer perspective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That what, is not it, what it, I was it, expecting you were going to say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you got the salesman's got to pick somebody and just they've got to. But to your point, though, I think, you know, alignment yeah. solves a lot of things. Right. So that customer is probably no longer a customer, or are they? But no, it's, <laughs> in, in actual we never went to the customer. We, okay. we, we, we executed the project, gotcha. but the, uh, the sales team had to go. The, it aligned the interest between the salesman and the project managers. He's got to go talk to him and he's got to say, uh, you know, hey, what's wrong? Well, I said, well, that's, there's not really enough, you know, that, 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 I, I don't know if we can deliver enough value on that to meet the pricing. Um, and it, it, it was a natural, like, alignment of the project manager and the salesman to where they can, uh, to where he knows that, like, look, we need to bid a little bit more on these in the future. Uh, maybe it, the ops manager tells him maybe we need to go get a little more help to help execute these jobs. But uh, yeah, in, in all actuality, we never went back to the customer. We didn't say no. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. but, we uh, threw it out to our team, it, man. Yeah, they yeah. just don't want it. Yeah. 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 It, but it, it's just kind of a nap. But what the beauty of it is, was it happened instantly and it, it linked up the communication between ops, sales, and the customer to realize, like, so, oh, so we need to fix something because we're not going to deliver on our promises. Because that's one of the main core values that we have at yeah. uh, PES is do what we say and, and say what we do. Yeah. But, so uh, how, yeah. how much change is enough change? <laughs> Are you, I mean, you, it feels like you've, you know, 180 compared to your industry. Uh, peers, but are you sitting on more change, just waiting for to dole it out slowly, or is are you feeling like you've created a culture that's ready to change incrementally? Well, if if I ever feel that we have it perfect, then I need to be run off <laughs> because nobody does. Sure. Right. Um, and I'll be the first to tell you, there's a lot of things we don't do right, and the few things that maybe we have figured out is, you know, stumbling onto it luck, yeah. failure, whatever. But the one thing we do do is we keep experimenting and we keep trying because our purpose has always, you know, we want to drive timely solutions that create extreme value so that we and our customer can be successful. If we're, uh, like I say, if, if we're not doing something right, if, if both sides are not successful, the client and us, then, then it's a, it's a elephant with legs made of clay. It can't stand. <laughs> it's going to, uh, it's going to collapse. Yeah. But, uh, I, I love the fact that you've, you know, I think people hearing this and I've heard people say this before, like, why do I need a mission statement? What? And I think people are missing the point when they say those kinds of things, because, and look, we haven't, we've been, you know, we started mirror group, I don't know, 16 months ago. We still don't have one. We kind of casually all have an idea, but, uh, you know, shame on me that we haven't totally articulated one. Mm -hmm. But I think what happens is when you have a clear mission statement is that decisions run through the prism of that mission statement. And it makes it clear. So to your point, if you're wanting to decentralize, your team knows exactly what the mission is. Mm -hmm. They can almost probably say a job you will and won't take, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Because so I think if, if you're listening to this and thinking, why do I need to do all that amongst all the million things I have to do as a small business owner, an entrepreneur? It's it's very important because it's you're playing the long game. And for you to scale, you have to have a team that's aligned, mm -hmm. that understands how to do, and, and certainly doesn't have every decision falling at your desk. Mm -hmm. So you can enjoy the fruits of being a small business owner and not working 80 hours. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think, and I mean, be a better leader. To absolutely. Them too. And I, I'm listening to your stuff. You, you saying this, I'm like, oh man, we got some stuff to work on. <laughs> I, need yeah. my, I need to get my mission statement ready. Yeah. But seriously though, I mean, it's, sure. it's like, it, I keep thinking of this. It's the, it's the prism you run all the decisions through, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. but I, I, I'll, I will say there's, there's, 
you know, we've, we've done a few things right over the years, but we've learned a lot and yeah. we've, we've had a lot of really great team members that yeah. have helped us build it. And, uh, you know, what really, what really drove us to do this was the, the real story behind it was, you know, we were primarily all oil and gas and, you know, 2013, 14, 15, 16, and it was great. 12, 13, 14. And then when it, you get into the situation where you just, you're billing customers by the hour. Yeah. And you're just telling your guys more hours, more hours, more hours there. The company success is based on how many hours we bill and you just keep on doing it. You know, you're, 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 you're extorting the customer almost in some sense. And it keeps going up and it's somehow it's just too good to be true. You know, you're making money, you're filling up the checking account with maybe cash that you don't deserve. And eventually it just comes to a point where the customer says, you know, enough, Yeah. like enough. We're not going to keep just paying for these problems that aren't being solved. Like get your firm stuff, get it out of here. <laughs> and we've had that happen to us. Yeah. I've had that happen to us. It was a really awakening experience when the market tightened up in 15 and 16 and you know, you do the only thing you can do in that situation. You don't, you have to, you have to stop the company from bleeding cash and you have to, you know, make cuts. Yeah. And it's one of the most painful things I ever had to do. Yeah. The worst thing I've ever had to do was to, you know, tell people that we couldn't, couldn't afford to pay their, their salary anymore. And we, that's when I swore to myself, I said, never again. Yeah. Never again. We're going to come up with a way to align our interests with the customers. We're going to compensate based on productivity, what the guys made. And what we found was when we started doing that, we saw our team members pay increase by about probably 20%. You know, our customer retention rate skyrocketed. We started having success even in tough markets. And then, you know, you fast forward a few more years to 2020 last year, you know, one of the worst economic situations in this country's history, certainly in our lifetime. Right. And uh, we were forced with the situation again. You know, we had a lot of people and it's illegal to go to work and no one's paying their bills and who knows what this industry, what we're going to look like. And there was a decision we had to make. We said, are we going to reduce staff by 80%? Are we going to declare bankruptcy? Are we going to go out of business? I said, no, we're not doing that again. So what we did was we doubled down on our compensation-based model. We did ask all of our employees to take a reduction in their base pay. Okay. But then we increased their productivity bonus compensation by a factor of four. What they're getting paid to produce. Yeah, what they're getting getting paid paid to do the work. Yep. They had base salaries, and on top of that, they had had productivity bonuses. But we, it was a decision that we were forced on us by necessity. We had to find a way to innovate. What it did was, you know, that first month or two was tough. Everyone had to take a little bit of a haircut. Um, we had to, we had to do what we had to do to keep fulfilling our purpose as a company. But the next 12 that followed, you know, we had so much success, so much, uh, work that we, we got because we were aligning our interests. We're letting everyone participate in the sales process, defining each role, uh, what each percentage of every dollar that came in, what got paid for that, that role. Yep. And it led to, you know, our own employees. We had pay raises between 20 all the way up to 80% in a market wow. that was just God awful. So and you it, all still have that model? If you, if you kept we that? 
we we have kept it and like we said it's uh it's it's very unique and very different and we're still still calibrating it in a yeah. sense we're always trying to 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 figure it out um it does ask our team members to take some of the risk with us but what it does it automatically shares all the upside yeah so you're so what it's inherently doing is giving you all the winners because only winners are going to gravitate to that model, I would think. Right. Or oh, let me let me right. back up. Only winners are going to succeed really well in that model because mm-hmm. they're going to bet on themselves. Because you're giving them a less of a of a floor, right? And mm-hmm. saying, okay, now go. But you get way more of the upside. Right. So that's going to. It's almost like it's like this self fulfilling prophecy. Now you've got more and more people, yeah. even better, probably super productive people who are willing to jump into that type of model because they bet on themselves. Right, right. And that, that's more or less how, how we think about it. Um, but it also allowed us to do, we didn't have to, we didn't have to lay off anyone throughout right. the entire awesome. coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And that to me was the biggest success of it all. And we, our guys trusted us with some pretty radical changes and I'll never, I can never express my gratitude that they trusted us to do it because it yeah. was, it was very scary. Sure. Talk about change when you change things that fast, right. Our team are yeah. bought into it, you know, and, and it, it, and I think it, we can all remember us. those those weeks when you said it was illegal to work, and everybody's like, I mean, no, it, it's we forget what that moment was like because we had we didn't have the hindsight that we do now to know, you know, was this going to be a month? Was this going to be right. <laughs> a year to wherever? So, and I would imagine your team now just kind of from a broad perspective can can do the work wherever they want if they want to be at home every day. Like, kind of what's your? I hadn't gotten to that a little bit, but kind of give me a little quick. No, hundred percent. What's like it said, like to work for PES? Yeah, yeah. We uh, it's a very decentralized model. We think of each of our team members as individual business units almost. We trust them to, if they commit to the work, it's very clear what their delivery expectations are, what we expect to them from a workflow control, what the quality. There's multi-tier review systems. They have to operate through our system, but at the end, we trust them to serve the customer. We like we don't care how much you take off. Work when you want. We don't care where you work. Work here. We have an office, but we uh, we allow them to. It's up to them. So I'm looking at. We've gone like 40 minutes, but I, I got like <laughs> I got another good. I got this, at least in my head, it's a good question. So I have this kind of theory that you can only, and you're in an industry like mine, mm-hmm. very traditional. And I'm sure some of your competitors are going to hear this or or watch your video. <laughs> but they're probably like, oh, this guy again, uh, talking about the billable hour. But I have this kind of theory that. The status quo is only good until your competitors kind of change the landscape, mm-hmm. right? So, like, just background, I had I had got my house, sold a house five, six months ago, and I, the process to go through the title process mm-hmm. was not, it was clunky. So, anyway, it just made me think, why are they doing it like this? Well, it's because everybody does it like this. Mm-hmm. So, my point is... Are you sensing that your competitors feel like they have to step up their game because the status quo has changed now with what you guys are doing? And because I would imagine with what you're doing is going to attract great talent. I mean, think about it. Pay time off, in control of what you make. Are you sensing that the firms have been put on notice that they need to do things differently? Or maybe you don't want to... Uh, no, no, I, I'd really like to think so. <laughs> right. Uh, but all I can attest to, it's worked for us. Yeah. And we've, we've had quite a bit of success. Are you, but, a, uh, are you a college football coach? That was like a very... <laughs> we were taking it one day at a time. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. But yeah, uh, yeah no, we, we, we like I said, we, 
one one of the things we do is we experiment. Yeah. And this podcast, luckily, didn't have enough time for all the failed experiments we've <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Well, I didn't but, tell you about. We're bringing you back for uh, part two. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, tell all. And it's not perfect. We know it's not perfect. And we're uh, right. We yeah. uh, we work to improve yeah. it every day. And yeah. one of the things we really encourage with our team members is. You know, we have our weekly Monday morning meetings. That's that's the one time as a group we all have to get together. And what it's for is strictly to develop, you know, to reinforce our culture. But more importantly, it's just to create conflict. We actually try to stir up conflict in the meeting because we value everybody's input on like how a, we are. Yeah. You're like a Ray Dalio. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, funny. Whenever you said that, that, I was like, that oh, you did, you, did, did you, you realize you said the like, word conflict? Yeah, or he must have read you, Ray yeah. Dalio principles. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, first of all, like all these ideas are definitely not all my own. Like we get them from, we got our team members. Like it, sure. it comes uh, like as, yeah. as a leader, you kind of get removed from how we actually execute some days. And you have to trust your guys to really give you input on what's working and what's not working. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. No, that's good. That's a good place to end it, man. That's an incredible story of uh, of of change and seeing the fruits of of the the labor of change in an organization. And so, yeah, I think if you're not motivated as a business owner to to find something to change and and execute on it, then I'm writing my mission statement right now. <laughs> there so. you go. Yeah. So next episode, we'll have, we'll start yeah, off we'll with start with Marcus's rough draft. Yeah, exactly. Thanks to uh, Clayton. Yeah, really. But uh, Clayton, if people wanted to get in touch with you, like if they had questions, how could they reach out to you? Uh, we could um, share some online, Facebook okay. or LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, maybe put it. We could put, put your contact in the show notes. Yeah. How to get in touch with Clayton? LinkedIn. That maybe works. LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah. Our number at the office. Yeah. So yeah. if you're if you're want to change your industry, right. and Flip it up on it on its head. <laughs> <laughs> need some advice. Um, and if you need accounting advice, always go to mirror.group. Um, all the episodes you can find there, as well as other resources, and reach out to Marcus directly there as well. So thanks again, Clayton. This yeah. has been great. Thanks, man. Thanks, I really I'll, appreciate I'll like you being a ton on more here. Questions, so. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I try to keep it short sometimes, but I get lazy, guys. Sorry if I ran too long. All good, man. All, all good. good. <laughs> all right. That's it. Thanks. See you next time. Thank you very much.